Well, before we were born again by the power of God's Spirit, and that may have happened a long time ago for some of us, more recently for others, but our focus was on doing what we wanted to do and on being who we wanted to be. But now that God has given us a new heart, and that's what's happened to us, that's what regeneration is. We've been given a new heart. And with that, we have a new desire. And now we want to do what he would have us to do. And we want to be who he would have us to be, at least in part. Because admittedly, we still find, do we not, our old desire to do what we want to do and to be who we want to be tugging at us. And the battle between our old desire to please ourselves and this new desire that has been put within us to please God, that battle will inevitably rage until Christ either comes or calls. But the very fact that it is now a battle within us is an indication that something radical has happened. The fact there's a battle is in itself a cause for encouragement. I remember somebody saying once, well, they were really discouraged. I understand, but really discouraged about this battle going on, you know, within them. And did the fact that there was a battle going on between wanting to do what they wanted to do and what they, what, wanting to do what God would have them to do, did the fact there was this battle going on mean that either perhaps they hadn't been converted as they thought or that they were a rather immature Christian? But it's the other way around, isn't it? The fact there's a battle going on is an indication we have been born again. Because that desire, any desire to do God's will, is alien to us by nature and can only have been put there by the Spirit. So in fact, the presence of a battle in your soul tonight is in itself proof to you that you are a new creation in Christ Jesus. And that battle rages, and we look forward to the day, don't we, when uh, it is only God's will that matters to us. But still, even now, to some degree, every true disciple of Jesus finds himself saying, with the master he's following, not as I will, but as you will. Our prayer, as we were taught, is, your will be done. And we cry with David, Teach me your will, for you are my God. Notice uh, David points out there that if God really is our God, it follows that we will say to him, teach me your will, because that's what it means for him to be our God, that he is our master. Our lives are under his control. We place them at his disposal, and so we say, teach me your will, for you are my God. So a Christian longs at heart to do God's will and is eager to know what God's will is so that he may do it. But what is God's will for those he has redeemed? Well, Paul goes some way towards answering that question for us, doesn't he, in the verses that I read a moment ago. Because he tells us that God's will uh, for his children, for the Thessalonians in the first instance here, but for all his children, including us here who have faith in Christ tonight, is firstly, that we rejoice always. Secondly, that we pray without ceasing. And thirdly, that we give thanks in everything. That is God's purpose for us tonight, that we would be joyful, prayerful, and thankful 
at all times. And they should be the distinguishing features of us as individuals and as a gathered congregation. Now, last time I was here, we looked at the first of those three things, didn't we? Rejoice always, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And then just a couple of days after preaching that, uh, I fell ill, and I remember thinking to myself, well, here's the challenge. How am I going to rejoice even when I'm feeling rather rotten? So I did what I said to you. By God's grace, I was able to be a doer of the word and not a hearer only. Uh, And I was able to sit down and think uh, about who my God is and what my God has given me. Uh, And although I wasn't doing cartwheels across the living room by any means, there was a measure of joy in my heart. We were created to know joy in our hearts. We've been designed to pursue joy. And now that we've been brought into fellowship with God, we can know this joy that we've been created for and that we desire and pursue in our hearts. And Paul makes it clear here that God would have his people to experience that joy in their hearts continually. Rejoice, a command, rejoice and do so always. And we said, didn't we, that comes only as we seek our joy in the right place, or should I say rather, in the right person. If we seek our joy in the things and the people of this world, then at best we will only know a measure of joy intermittently, because the people and the things of this world come and go, and they're liable to change without warning. We saw that in the pandemic, didn't we? That so many of the things that people relied on for their joy were suddenly taken from them uh, in one government announcement. But if we seek our joy in God, he never changes. And if we seek our joy in the spiritual blessings that he has poured out and does pour out upon us, then they can never be lost. And so when we seek our joy in God and in what he gives us in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, then it is possible for us to rejoice always. Those who can rejoice always are those who can say with David, my soul shall be joyful in the Lord, it shall rejoice in his salvation. And even in the most painful of trials, If we set ourselves to consider who God is and what he has done for us and provided for us in Christ Jesus our Lord, we can know something of the joy of the Lord in our hearts. Not a joy that pushes all the sorrow out. Not a joy that makes all the pain of a particular trial uh, and affliction just disappear. But a joy that finds its place in the heart alongside the affliction and that prevents us from being utterly overwhelmed by it. You remember Paul talked about being sorrowful yet rejoicing. So God's will, says Paul, in effect here in 1 Thessalonians 5.16, is that we seek our joy in him and in his work on our behalf. That's the command. Rejoice always. It's not turn on a happy feeling, turn that frown upside down. It's a practical command. You're implied, isn't it? Rejoice always. Focus. Seek your joy in God. Seek your joy in his work. And that as we meditate on those things, 
continually, even whilst we're in the furnace of affliction, especially when we're there. Rejoice always. Not a, um, a helpful piece of advice, but an explicit command of God to us tonight. Now this evening, then, we turn our attention to the next thing Paul has to say concerning God's will for his people. And it's found in verse 17. It's this. Pray without ceasing. Paul says, this is God's purpose, God's desire. This is what God has redeemed you for. This is what God is shaping you to be. Somebody who prays and who prays without ceasing. Again, that's a um, a clear mark of a child of God, isn't it? That we pray, that we seek God. Um, by nature, we read in the scriptures, nobody seeks God. We're not looking for him. We don't want him. We turn away from him. We reject him for ourselves. And if we turn towards him, again, here's indication that something's happened. Life has come in. There's a new birth, a new heart, new desires. And God created us, we said, to experience joy in our hearts. So God created us to communicate with him. Isn't that an astonishing thought? That this infinite God created you and me to communicate with him, to interact with him, to cry out to him to lift our hearts to him, to bring requests to him. Those are not things that we do as human beings uh, because we want to do them and we're reaching out to God, but he's not really interested and we're sort of trying to get his attention. No, God has created us for these things. He wants, he desires that we cry out to him and we lift our hearts to him and we bring our requests to him and we interact with him. We were created for that. God desires that. And that's what prayer is. It's communicating with God. It's interacting with God. It's crying out to God. It's lifting our hearts to God. It's bringing our requests to God. Here we are in a, uh, a small village, in a, a small um, county, in a small country comparatively, in a small universe, a small world, in a, a grand universe. And tonight, as we gather to pray, um, Mark's already um, led us in that, and I briefly, and we'll be doing it uh, together after, we've lifted our hearts to God. We've cried out to him and we have communicated with him. And Paul says, this is what Christians must do. It's what God himself would have them to do. It's God's explicit will for those he has ransomed. That we pray. Paul was no hypocrite, was he? He practiced what he preached. When you read his letters, as they're found here in the New Testament, you discover that he was, without question, a man whose life was marked by prayer. He was consistently interacting with God, crying out to God, lifting his heart to God. He was a man who recognized that was God's will for him as much as anyone. And he did God's will from the heart. Paul was a man who prayed. Simple statement but it's profound as well when we remember what prayer is. 
And in that, Paul was walking in the footsteps of Jesus himself, wasn't he? Because as we read what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John have to say about Jesus' life here upon the earth, we have to agree that Jesus was himself a man who was consistently interacting with his Father, crying out to him and lifting his heart to him. And so when Paul instructs the Thessalonians here in chapter 5 and verse 17 to pray without ceasing, he's exhorting them, and by extension us, to imitate him just as he also imitates Christ. He says, this is what Christ did. I'm doing it, and you follow me. Now in Acts 2 and verse 42, Luke tells us about um, the life of the believers in Jerusalem. There were thousands of them. You remember, but at least 3,000 came to faith on the day of Pentecost, and not long after, uh, others came, and the, the church grew. And in Acts 2.42, uh, we're given, really, um, the DNA of the church. Um, and Luke tells us that these Christians continued steadfastly. In other words, they were intentional about they were unswervingly committed to. They were absolutely devoted to four things. These were the pillars on which the church in Jerusalem rested. The apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayers. They were uh, what made those Christians tick. That's what they gathered together to do, to listen to the apostles' teaching to fellowship, to break bread, and to pray. They gathered to pray deliberately, purposefully, intentionally, and swervingly. We gather to pray. They deliberately made prayer an integral part of church life in Jerusalem, and they saw that it occupied a prominent place. And interestingly, uh, Phil Arthur, in his commentary on 1 Thessalonians, suggests that when Paul, um, Luke sorry, speaks about these four things, he's saying that they had equal place in their affections and in their priorities, if that makes sense. If you, yeah, you can have more than one priority. Equal place in their priorities. Prayer was top with the others. And I wonder if don't uh, shoot me down now. Uh, I wonder if we've placed so much emphasis, and let me finish my statement, but I wonder if we've placed so much emphasis on the preaching and teaching of God's word that prayer has almost become a poor relation. Now, I don't mean that we shouldn't be placing central emphasis on the preaching and teaching of God's word. Of course not. But my point is this, have we become so much about that that we define ourselves simply as being people of the book? What are you? We're a people who study the word. What are you? I'm somebody who builds my life on God's word. Why do you gather? We gather to study God's word, or we gather to hear God's word. Yes, by all means, of course. But I wonder, does prayer, or has prayer, almost... Um, perhaps we wouldn't necessarily state it like this, but when we think about the way it plays out sometimes in our own lives and in church life, is it that we've almost uh, relegated prayer to a second place? The most important thing, the primary thing, 
is the teaching and preaching of God's word. And then somewhere just below, where we also pray. Because if so, then we've gone wrong. Because in one sense, of course, the preaching and teaching of God's word should be feeding and stimulating prayer. If anything, the more we study God's word and the more we sit under the, the, the preaching of God's word, the more we should be praying. The more we should be doing something with what we're, we're hearing. Because when we're hearing preaching, surely it should be stirring our hearts to worship God in prayer. And it should be stirring our hearts to say to the Lord, Lord, I'm not what is set out in your words. I thank you that I'm not what I once was, but I can see I'm not what I should be. Lord, I can see I remain a, a sinner. Lord, I need your forgiveness. And the preaching of God's word should be stirring us to pray to, about action, shouldn't it? Lord, I can see uh, that I must be, I, sh I should be doing this. Oh, Lord, please help me. Lord, please give me wisdom and energize me for this. So if we're really understanding what preaching and the teaching of God's word is, it shouldn't lead to prayer being relegated. It should elevate prayer in our hearts, in our minds, and in our practice. I wonder if we were to look simply, and I, I know this is simplistic, but forgive me for that. If we were to look simply at the amount of time given to prayer, say, in a Sunday service, or in our other regular activities, alongside, say, singing and discipleship, a singing and Bible study, I'm sorry, could it really be said that we're a people devoted to prayer? Or is it that prayer is part of our discipleship? Prayer is part of our church life. But could you really say it's integral to how we function? If somebody were to, um, like you get an undercover reporter or whatever, you know, and were to come amongst... Um, any church uh, for, for, for a week or whatever, uh, and then to leave at the end of it. I wonder would they leave with the impression, well, I tell you one thing about those people, they pray. Or would it be, and I don't want to labor the point, but or would it be, were they the people who are, are big on the Bible? And that's important, of course. But if they wonder, would it ever cross their mind to say, well, I tell you one thing, they're the prayerful people. They pray. Clearly, you know, the person might say, well, I don't see any interest in it whatsoever, and I don't understand what they're doing, but I tell you this much, they pray. And I wonder whether, to borrow a, a phrase from the present government, we need to look at leveling up, not to dumbing down, you know, bring, bring Bible study and whatever down to where we put prayer, but to lift prayer up. Uh, and whether we need to level up when it comes to the place of prayer in our own minds and hearts and church life. You know, I, I, this is a challenge for myself. Now, in Acts chapter 6 and verse 4, the leaders of the church at Jerusalem, the apostles, identify two things to which they say they will give themselves continually. So much so that there are certain practical duties that they say, although these are honorable duties, and it's not that we see ourselves as above these things and these things are beneath us, but these other two things we're going to mention now are so important that the other things must be entrusted to others so we can focus on these, because these must not be neglected. Prayer and the ministry of the word. And again, it's interesting that both are there. Prayer and the ministry of the word. And I wonder as um, pastors or church leaders and so on, I include myself in that to a degree, I wonder if we can sometimes be so concerned with our ministry of the word 
that for us, prayer gets pushed out somewhat. And yet, prayer is as much a part of our calling as the ministry of the Word. But do we think of it in that way? Do we think that I'm somebody set aside with responsibility in a church for prayer and the ministry of the Word? One writer has said, serious intercession should be the hallmark of a gospel ministry, the life and soul of a spiritually healthy congregation. The hallmark of a gospel ministry, the life and soul of a spiritually healthy congregation. Beth and Lloyd-Jones would often say about her husband, of course, about Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, everyone talks about him as a preacher. And everyone says that he was a man of the word. She said, you won't understand him until you understand that he was also a man of prayer. So it's God's will for his church that we be a people who pray. We be a people who listen to his word, a people who study his word, but a people who pray. And I wonder, does the study of the word feed our praying? I'm not making a particular comment here because it's only the second time I've been here, but I wonder sometimes is there almost a, 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 a complete break between the study that we have at the beginning and then the prayer time. The one should feed the other, shouldn't it, and stimulate it. So I wonder how visible is prayer on the church's timetable. In every department of church life, is prayer seen as being as valuable as the ministry of the word? How engaged we might ask ourselves, am I as a person in the church's prayer life? How significant is prayer in my own daily discipleship? So Paul says it is God's will that we pray. More than that, it's God's will that we pray without ceasing. What does he mean by that? Well, he doesn't mean, of course, that God wants us to do nothing but pray 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Paul is not calling in this verse for us to spend all our time on our knees in focused, concentrated prayer. Just as God would have us to pray, so he would have us to raise our families, earn a living, and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. We need to eat, we need to sleep, and we need to rest. So what does Paul mean then when he says that God's will for us in Christ Jesus is that we pray without ceasing? Well, I think he has three things in mind. Firstly, he's saying that we are to pray in each and every circumstance of life. Every occasion in life is an occasion for prayer. When we are conscious of a particular blessing we've received from the Lord, we must offer a prayer of thanksgiving. When we have an important decision to make, we must pray for wisdom. When we're in difficulty, we must pray for strength and or deliverance. When we're anxious, we must pray for peace. When we're in need, we must pray for provision. When we've sinned, we must pray for forgiveness. When our nation is in crisis, we must pray for our leaders. In all those various situations that will come up in life, they should drive us 
to pray, to cry out to God, to lift our hearts to him, to, to communicate with God. And there's always cause to pray for spiritual growth, isn't there? Both in ourselves and in others. Always cause to pray for the conversion of the lost and the progress of the gospel. So Paul's point is that whatever situation we find ourselves in, on the roller coaster of life, whether we're in a peak or a trough on the graph, our response should be to pray about it, to lift our hearts, our minds, and our wills to God. Sometimes we can be quite narrow in our um, situations for prayer, can't we? Uh, so there's certain things. Or if we're in that situation, we'll pray, but not in others. Paul is speaking about a a life that in every aspect is covered and shaped by prayer. When Paul says we are to pray without ceasing, he's saying that, as he put it in another letter, in everything, by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. Is it wisdom? Is it forgiveness? Is it strength? Is it peace? Is it um, help for leaders? Well, Paul says, in everything, by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. I wonder, are we rounded, well-rounded in our prayer lives? Is there a good breadth and scope to those things about which we cry out to God? Paul said in Ephesians, pray I think this is a good, it's a New International Version translation, but I think this gets to the heart of it. You pray on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. And it's interesting, the <coughs> Greek word uh, translated for us here in verse 17 as pray is the most general word for prayer um, that is used in the New Testament. Uh, and the point is that it covers all kinds of prayers, supplications, intercessions, uh, confessions, thanksgivings, and so on. Paul is saying, pray about everything. Pray without ceasing. Don't limit your prayer life to certain aspects of your experience. Be in touch with God about everything. Then secondly, I think Paul is saying that we should Uh, By saying that um, we should pray without ceasing, Paul is saying we should live our lives in an attitude of prayer. So it's not about um, setting aside times in the diary when we pray. Paul is speaking about living our lives in an attitude of prayer. What I mean is this, God is with us. What a beautiful thought, Christmas in Emmanuel, God with us. God is with us every second of every day. Everything we do, we do in his presence. The reformers talked about the fact that we live uh, in the face of God, that God's, you know, God is continually there, and we're continually in his presence. He's always with us, always there. He's made his home with us. And if we approach our lives with that mindset, rather than perhaps the mindset we sometimes have, which is that God is up in heaven, somewhere far up in the sky, and prayer is sort of trying to reach him all the way up there, if we do it with a concept of that God is with us, God ruleth on high, isn't it, Wesley, almighty to save, 
but still he is nigh, his presence we have. And if we go through our daily tasks conscious that God is there, then it'll be quite natural for us at various points to just speak briefly with him about things. So, for example, when uh, Naomi is with me, my, my wife, uh, it's quite natural as things arise that I'll turn to speak to her about them. So something, there'll be a, a cause for thanksgiving, I'll turn to her and say, isn't it wonderful, look what's happened. Um, or if there's a need, I'll say, oh, I've got this need. Or um, just to make general comments, because I know she's there, and it's natural, she's there, I'm aware of her, con- her presence, I'm conscious that she's there, so I find it natural to turn to her and talk to her about things. And if we go through our lives conscious that God is with us, then it'll be natural for us in situations, on the spur of the moment, simply to talk to him about the things that are happening, to talk to him about what we've just heard, about what we've just seen, about what we've just experienced. Paul is emphasizing here that our prayer life should not consist simply of scheduled, structured, quiet times where we go into our room, shut the door, and pray. They must be there. They're good. Jesus withdrew from people to spend extended periods of time in prayer. But that should not be the sum and substance um, uh, alone of our prayer life. Uh, There should be those regular, what you might call, in-the-moment prayers, offered up in real time, in the shower, in the car, at the, as long as you're concentrating as well, at the meal table, in the supermarket, in response to something you've thought or heard or experienced. Because God is always there. It's not like trying to make an appointment with a GP, is it? Uh, and you ring up and these days you can't get in to see them, so you're told they ring you back. Uh, and you're sort of conscious, oh, I've got to get everything in now because I've got them, but I've only got them for five minutes, and, 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 and you know, I've got to focus this now and get everything done. It's not like that. God is always with us. He's never not with us. And we can be in continual communication with him. God doesn't have office hours that we have to stick to. Simple but beautiful that we can talk to our Father any time. He's always there. The phone is never on the hook. And so I think Paul is encouraging us to be spontaneous as well as structured in prayer. Because that's what living, breathing relationships are like. Again, I don't set hours with Naomi when we'll talk about things. And so, you know, we're going to talk now. Seven till nine every evening is when we talk about things. And just if something happens at one o'clock in the afternoon, I store it up until seven o'clock to talk about it. No, because that's not how relationships work. That's not how intimate relationships work. You're always talking. And it's not a 20-minute diatribe or or a speech, but just a, a comment, a request. An item of praise, for example, for a for a wife or something appropriately. You could say that true prayer is a lifestyle not an event. And I wonder, do we sometimes make prayer an event that we schedule in the diary? It's a lifestyle. It's woven into the very fabric of everyday life because we're in a relationship with the one to whom we lift our heart. 
So when Paul says we are to pray without ceasing, I think he's also saying that as well as praying in everything, we're praying at all times, not in limited times, at all times in the Spirit. And then thirdly and finally, Paul is saying, I think, that we are to be determined and persistent in prayer. Pray without ceasing. Determined and persistent. And I have two things in mind when I say determined and persistent. Number one, do we sometimes bring merely a list of what I call perishable requests? By that, I mean things that have a limited lifespan or time span. So, for example, we might pray about a doctor's appointment that we've got tomorrow. Because once the doctor's appointment is over, we never pray about that again because it's happened. Or we pray about a sermon coming up on Sunday. Well, again, once the sermon's been preached, there we are. We, we don't have to pray about its preaching again. And they're good and right and proper. Those emergency-focused, uh, right-in-front-of-us matters. Perishables. But our prayers have to be more substantial than that. And it's striking. When you read Paul's epistles, the things he prays about, you think, well, Paul, of course you're going to have to pray for these again because they're not accomplished with one prayer. So when Paul is praying for the spiritual growth of the Ephesians or the Colossians, you think, well, you have to pray about that every day. Because every day, until they get to glory, they'll need prayer for their spiritual growth and development. And so it's that balance in our praying of those immediate things that have a limited lifespan where we get answers fairly quickly. And being a bit more... Um, substantial in our praying as well, and really seeking things that we'll have to keep asking for, and again, and again, and again. That's mature prayer, isn't it? And I think a second thing I have in mind when I mean we're to be determined and persistent in prayer, we're to have things that we've got to keep asking about, because they're not just sorted out in one or two prayers. And secondly, when we're praying for things and we don't see what we're praying for instantly, we're not to faint or lose heart. And that's natural, isn't it? Um, I speak, uh, do not speak from six feet above contradiction in that, about the, the tendency to lose momentum and to lose heart when we don't see obvious, substantial results from things we've been seeking. But I think pray without ceasing is that we must be in it for the long haul that we are people who are going to keep on knocking, asking, and seeking. God may be helping us to develop patience. As somebody once said, the problem with patience is you only get it by having to wait. Uh, God never just drops it into us. He may be refining our prayers. And if you often found that over, over time, you're praying about a certain matter in a different way a year later than you were to begin with because you've matured and learned a bit about how to pray in those kinds of situations. And so God may be holding off to give us opportunity to develop and mature our praying. But we mustn't allow apparent delays to dishearten us. We simply keep asking. And God is never wearied. I can't remember now, was it three? Don't quote me on that. But there was certainly a small number of times the Jews had decided that you could ask God about a certain matter. Because after that, you got on his nerves. It's not like that. Keep asking. I think of a, 
lady back in the church I pastored in the, the valleys, and she prayed for decades for her husband. Uh, and then in his 70s, he came to faith in Christ and was one of the most delightful Christians I ever met. But she prayed every day. She prayed without ceasing. And so to quote Paul to the Colossians, it's continue earnestly in prayer. Prayer is something serious that requires real commitment and dedication, doesn't it? So to sort of sum up, we're to pray, and we're to pray like this, in everything, at all times, earnestly. Why? Because it's God's will for us, that's enough. But also it's good for us. You know, God only ever requires of us what is good for us. He only ever requires of us what is good for us. And we find that when we communicate with God, when we cry out to God, what happens? We deepen our fellowship with God because relationships grow through communication. We're strengthened for the spiritual battle. We're empowered for service. And we find that peace that we need, don't we, in time of trouble. Can I just finish by asking, what might hinder us in praying? We're going to sing a hymn now, what various hindrances we meet in coming to the mercy seat. And I wonder what hindrances we might meet that prevent us from praying and praying without ceasing. Well, I wonder, are we intimidated by quotes like this from Martin Luther? I have so much to do that I cannot get on without three hours a day of praying. Now, we hear something like that, and we immediately think, wow, how spiritual. But also, for many of us, how unattainable. In the natural demands of life, to have to fulfill all those and have three hours a day of praying can be simply impossible. And what happens, because we can't spend those three hours in prayer, we give up and spend very little time at all in prayer. What matters, friends, is that we pray. Not how long we pray in total, or how long any individual block of prayer time may be. If you can pray for three hours, and pray for three hours in one go, by all means. I remember in Evangelical Magazine, there was an article, um, you should remember it, Mark, from your editorship, um, and I think it was an article borrowed from somewhere else, um, which was talking about how to be able to pray for an hour which was so helpful because you just think, how on earth am I going to pray for an hour? And it was a very practical, helpful guide to how you might pray for an hour. But even if you can't do that, when we're ill, perhaps we can only manage 10 seconds. It's a lifting of the heart to the Lord. That's what matters, even if we can only do it for 10 seconds. Perhaps we don't pray because we find concentrating difficult. Then pray in short, sharp bursts. Perhaps, of course, we've fallen into the trap of self-sufficiency. When a situation comes along, well, I can handle this. I can do this by myself. And then, generally, we can find it in prayer. Prayer is sort of the last resort, isn't it? You know, we've tried everything else. We've, we, we've tried to sort it out ourselves. That didn't work. Well, we better look to God about it then. And perhaps we need to recognize our complete dependency on God. And may he need, need perhaps, to literally bring us to our knees in things. Perhaps praying just takes effort. Well, effort is required, and it's certainly worth it, isn't it? But whatever, let us 
pray. We say that, don't we? Let us pray. There's so much in that. Let us pray. Whatever we do, let's not let Satan keep us from the throne. We can come to the throne tonight. The throne of grace, which we can approach to obtain mercy and to find grace to help in time of need. And let's pray with confidence. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And remember that the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Come, my soul, thy plea prepare. Jesus loves to answer prayer. He himself has bid thee pray in verses like this. Therefore will not say thee nay. Don't refuse this glorious invitation. Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such. None can ever ask too much. O oh Lord, give us hearts to pray.